Hi, party people. Welcome to Black Genius. This is your host, Olare Shionbola. Black Genius is the only platform where you get to connect deeply with the Black intelligentsia, those pushing the world forward from a deep sense of purpose. Here, you get to hear the life stories of geniuses from every corner of the globe, from Oakland to Lagos to Tokyo, and find out how you too can tap into your highest sense of purpose to deliver the world we all wish to live in. Hi, party people. Welcome to Black Genius. It is Saturday, June 20th. 3 p.m. in the UK, 10 a.m. in New York, Jersey, where I have my darling co-founder, Uzamaka, joining. <laughs> joining Hello, from. everybody. Um, I just want to check in. I just want to know how you guys are doing. I know there's a lot of madness happening out there. And, you know, the first time, the first episode, I came out here and I said, you know, we're going to, we need to start a movement. We need to start a revolution. Right. And that's always been my language. I was talking to my brother yesterday and I was like, what do we get? What do our, what did the hoteps get? Do we get an award for telling y'all this was going to happen 20 years ago? <laughs> what do we get? Um, so at Nora Labs, we talk about what's happening all the time um, and how our work, you know, serves this moment, how we were created for this moment. So I just want us to kind of, check in and revisit the work that we do and why we do it and why uh, Black Unity is the revolution. So, Uzamaka, I just want you to say what's up to the people. And um, let me give give you a proper introduction. Uzamaka has worked in nonprofit development, business development for nearly a decade. um, And she has every skill that I have. She, like, takes it to the next (laughs) level. We're kind of duplicates. Um, so I'm super grateful, super, super grateful for her. She's been the backbone. Our, our team has doubled in size in the last two, three weeks. Um, so my workload has like, you know, tripled, but it's been worth it. It's been fun. Um, and Uzo has been my backbone that whole time. And, you know, we're so excited for all the work that we're going to do in the near future. How you doing, Uzo? Say what's up. To I'm good. Hello, everybody. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening, depending where you are. Lolita, thank you for a wonderful introduction. And I'm, I'm honored to be here with you and everybody else here tuning in to Black Genius. So it is a pleasure. It's a new day today. It's a new time. In Jersey, I am. Tell us how. Tell us how you're feeling. Tell us how quarantine and protests and everything is just. Just how's you feeling? It's it's bittersweet, you know. Mostly sweet, also mostly bitter, you know, because it's a new time. The universe is giving us an opportunity for reconstruction. Um, a lot of folks who who you know, a lot of us were in a bustle, the everyday hustle and bustle of work and school and going and going and the quarantine has really put a stop to it and has allowed people to pause and and think and reevaluate. You know, unfortunately unfortunately many people have passed. So, you know, our 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 hearts go out to their friends and their families, you know, but for everybody else that's here, it's giving us permission to stop to reconnect with ourselves. It's given us permission to not do the things that we don't want to do, you know? So for many people who maybe didn't want to go into a certain kind of field, now they don't have to. Now there's, you don't have to. You don't have to do anything that you really don't want to do now, except stay home. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. Just, I just want to say, you know, show, send some love to the families of victims of police brutality. Um, everybody's lost somebody to COVID. 
Um, you know, it's a great pain that Black people have borne for generations, 500 years, it feels like. <laughs> so they say 400, but I don't know if, you know, we've, we've, carried, we've carried some pain, we've carried some trauma, um, but this is an opportunity to just throw it all off. This is a time to just say, you know what, this is who I am. I'm embracing who I am. I'm celebrating who I am. Listen to Lauren Hill's Unplugged album. Ooh, yes, <laughs> because the truth the of that album for this moment mm-hmm. cannot be overstated. Cannot be overstated. Lauren Hill was, you know, prescient well before her time. And everybody who loves Lauren Hill has been saying this stuff for the last 20 years about how the world really works. So at Nora Labs, our mission is just to unite Black people, just to show you how glorious you are through our news, through our art, through everything that we curate, just remind you that you are the original people. You started this. You're going to finish this. Like, you got this. So Nora Press, our media platform, we've launched the blog. Go to norpress.org. We'll be adding content there. Send us your press releases. Send us your stories. Tell us what glorious things that you're doing out in the world, the stuff that you're finding that you want us to talk about. Um, I love it when people send me stuff. It's just like a lot now. <laughs> so we want the editor to, uh, to capture all of that and, and review it. So please send stuff to editor at norpress.org. Um, tag us, hashtag Norpress. If you're doing some dope shit and you post it on your Instagram or your Twitter, tag us. We want to repost you. Um, just stay connected. And Norfest, our virtual film festival featuring the finest aspirational films from across the Black diaspora. You, you just want Wakanda on a thousand, like all the dopest films. If you're a filmmaker, send us your submissions. Look at our film Freeway. Um, submissions are going to kind of be rolling. So it does say June 24th is a deadline, but we want you to submit uh, beyond that. So if you can't get yours submitted, please send us a message so that we can uh, we can send you a code. What else should we say, Giselle? <laughs> what else do we need to tell the people? <laughs> it's time to get in position. It's time to get in position. And everybody plays a position. Some people are in the front line in the protest. Some people, you know, like us at Nor Press, at Nor Labs, Nor Fest, we're, we're creating, like you said, Wakanda, Alkibalon. So we're over here getting it ready. So once what's need to be dismantled is dismantled, everybody has a place to come home to. <laughs> it's falling apart. Everything is falling apart. So the only yeah. the only thing that will win is the truth at a time yeah. like this. So just embrace your truth. Speak yeah. to the most high every day. Get the downloads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get the downloads faster than the internet. We're gonna have our own <laughs> podcast too. Just wait for it. With that, I'm going to say goodbye to my darling Uzo. I'm going to bring on the star of the moment, Peter's side. Um, Tokini has, man, you know, like, if you read the bio, if you haven't read the bio, Google her. Say, please drop some links in the comments because your girl deserves to be Googled, okay? (laughs) She started the biggest, most glorious African art fair in West Africa called Art X Lagos. She helped, she's behind brands like Maki O and Alara. Yo, when you talk about African luxury, like nobody, nobody compares to the work of Tokini Peter side. So please, you know, play your drums, do whatever you got to do and help me welcome. Say goodbye yeah. to Uzo and help me welcome Tokini. Bye, guys. <laughs> Hi, Tokini. Hi, Lele. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for Am that. Am I getting the tones right? Yes. Because it sounds like a Yoruba name, but it's not, Tokini. Yeah, a lot of Yoruba people try to claim my name, but it's it's not a Yoruba name, though I do have a Yoruba name. It feels so Yoruba, and your taste feels Yoruba. So we're gonna. But tell us, tell us where you, where are your people from? 
So actually, my mother is Yoruba, and so I do have a Yoruba name, Oluwatoyi. Uh, my father is from River State, and his two tribes are the Calabari and the Bani. So Tokini actually means the Lord is worthy to be praised, or so sometimes Ooh. just simply praised. Um, but okay. yeah, that's where we're from. But my family have mostly been in Lagos. That's where I grew up. That's where I live now. Wow. So how is Lagos? What's been happening with, you know, the lockdown, the, the madness with COVID? How, tell us how it feels to be in Lagos right now. So Lagos is quiet, you know, and for those who've ever visited, you know what a contradiction that statement is. Um, I've lived in Lagos for most of my life, although I did spend part of my life living in the UK. And this is, this is probably the quietest I've ever seen it. Um, the good thing, though, is that many Lagosians are being really responsible. Um, you know, if you drive through the streets, you see a lot of people wearing masks, even when they're walking and commuting. Um, people are taking this very seriously. I think the Lagos state government has taken COVID so seriously. And when you have a governor giving these almost weekly updates, sharing with everyone what he's asking them to do, how seriously they need to take this. I have to say that as a Lagosian, I'm pretty impressed with my city's handling of the COVID-19 crisis. Wow. And when we spoke at the beginning of the pandemic, you were telling me how private citizens have been organizing to, you know, feed the, the masses. Tell me about some of that stuff you've seen happen. Oh, yeah, there's been a lot of that. Um, so many people put together. This was during the strictest part of the lockdown when there was no movement. A lot of stores were closed. So many people we knew put together community outreach programs, whether in Lagos Island or parts of the mainland, churches, so many groups were gathering to to feed um, the masses, to feed people whose, you know, access to their daily bread had been cut off because there was very little activity in the city. A lot of that is simmering down now because the economy is moving again. Um, there is okay. movement again. A lot of the curfews um, have been changed, and so people can actually go back out and do what they need to that's essential. Um, but it's been really great seeing how Lagosians have rallied around each other. Um, people have come together, really taking ownership of the solution to this problem. Um, and that's been amazing. The private sector has galvanized around the government, banks, FMCG companies, so many people donating to the effort. They're building um, they're building isolation centers. People are equipping doctors. They're flying in equipment. It's been really encouraging to see. That's exciting. So what do you think the future holds after a time like this? If we're, you know, mm -hmm. shifting in our mindsets. You said to me the other day that people are, you know, are being introspective. Um, they're really kind of seeking God's face and seeking truth because everything that they thought to be true in the past no longer is. Mm -hmm. um, so what is the best possible outcome out of a situation like this? You know, it's, um, there are so many possible outcomes. There are so many things that one hopes for. Um, I think first is, you know, what COVID-19 has led so many to do is appreciate the value of family, appreciate the value of connections, um, and appreciate as well a quieter, more introspective existence. 
Um, mm-hmm. you, know, you only have to look at social media to see that people are really thinking about their roles as citizens, as individuals. And we see how that is spilling over into the activism that's now coming out at this moment. Mm-hmm. So in Nigeria, you know, just as the US is going through a lot and the UK and countries around Europe, Nigeria has been going through a lot as well. You know, um, there has been a real uptick in violence against women, in sexual violence as well. People have been calling out on social media um, for the government to do a lot about this, and the government is responding. I think by virtue of the fact that people are being asked to live a quieter life, we are paying so much more attention to what's happening in our societies, and we're asking ourselves individually, what role can I play? What voice do I have? And what contribution can I make to this... um, to this society and this place that I call home. And I think that's a good thing. If that persists, I think it would have been a very, very positive after effect of the pandemic. What an exciting time to be alive. (laughs) (laughs) How fortunate are we? Um, And your contribution has been so many things. The major one that everyone knows about is Art X Lagos. Um, we're going to talk a lot about Art X. We're going to talk about your time at Moet, but I want to go back to the beginning. <laughs> so you said you were, you know, you were raised in Lagos um, and you lived in the UK for a little bit. Tell us about your upbringing. So I was born in Lagos to a mother who is Yoruba and a father who is um, what some people now call South South, but from Opobo mm-hmm. Kingdom um, and from the Abonema Kingdom in River State as well. And because I was born into this multi-ethnic household, English was our language, right? And that was what I spoke. I went to primary school in Lagos and I'm still, still very close friends with many people I went to school with. But my childhood was honestly idyllic. You know, I grew up in Victoria Island at a time when it was almost entirely residential. I was riding my bike on the streets, you know, to go and visit friends. And we lived in blissful ignorance, my siblings and I, because those years were the years of, you know, the Babangida uh, military era. Those were the years of June 12, 1993, when you had what happened with Yola and Nigeria's fight for democracy. Then you had the Abacha dictatorship. And honestly, my siblings and I lived through that era in total ignorance as young kids. We were dancing, we were playing with our friends. And I really have to... I really have to give a shout out to all the parents of that era who insulated their children from the very major uncertainties that they were facing as adults um, at that time. And so in like the mid 90s, I went to boarding school in England. Um, and that was the first time I was confronted with my with my Africanness and with my blackness. Because prior to that, I was this happy-go-lucky child growing up in a black majority country, um, not recognizing what a privilege that was to the fact mm. that I was empowered and enabled to be everything that I wanted to be. You know, I was the first mm. child in my family. My father, to him, it doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl, he sees you as he sees you for everything that you are. My mother's exactly the same. So I was raised to believe that I could be anybody I wanted to be. I was raised to strive for everything I wanted in life, to pursue my dreams, to be bold, to be fearless. And I'm really grateful for that upbringing. How do you think your parents, you know, 
got to that place because you told me about how they encouraged you with art <laughs> and the creative, uh, the creative side of yourself. Tell us about your parents' occupation. What did they do and how were they in this mindset of, you know, be free to be you? Sure. So my father was an entrepreneur um, and a banker and he became an entrepreneur very early in his life um, when he was 33, actually. And, um, mm-hmm he encouraged excellence. That was just what my father was about, you know? Um, if, you, if you could come top of the class, that was his expectation of you. My mother mm. was the disciplinarian, believe it or not. She was very young when she had us. And um, she had a lot of energy, therefore, which meant that if you misbehaved, you got into serious trouble. You know, people see me with my mother now, we're best of friends. She looks like she's in her 40s, even though she's, she's pushing 60. And... Um, People cannot imagine that there was once upon a time when my mom would come home from work, ask people what it took me to do, and next thing I'm on the floor and she's literally like going at me because I was a naughty child. I was really naughty. But <laughs> my mother was a lover of the arts, right? She loved music, she loved visual arts, she loved theater. Um, She loved dance. She loved it all. And as children, we were so privileged to have access to these extracurricular activities. I had an art teacher at weekends, and we would sit there with friends, and we'd do collages and put pictures together. (laughs) We were just encouraged to use our minds freely. You know, we sang, we played piano. um, We did so much as children. And our our parents really worked so hard to give us an all-rounded education. So everything from, of course, academics to sports, but then a love of the arts was really encouraged in our household. And I think that that was my beginning. Um, That was the beginning of my journey, you know, being in a home surrounded by beautiful paintings. In fact, sometimes spotting paintings my mom had hidden from my dad because she bought one or two paintings to support young artists. (laughs) And he was just going, there's a lot of paintings already in the house. Um, It was amazing just being free in that way. Mm. What were the things that got you in trouble? Oh, gosh, I had a mouth. (laughs) <laughs> let's just okay. say let's just say that um, I was very quick with my tongue and mm. so as a young and I was very I was very audacious you know I, I I did things and I spoke to people in a way that was very uncommon for a young child um, and I think it just came from a very strong sense of self, even at a very young age. So I got into trouble for, you know, not being super respectful to elders or to staff. Um, I got into a lot of trouble at home. And my mom jokes now that what most parents went through with their kids during adolescence, she went through with me at like the age of seven, eight, nine. So by the time I was a teenager and my friends were misbehaving, I was good. I was straight. I was best friends with my mom. We were good at that point. Um, but I was, I was cheeky. I was really cheeky. You said you had a solid sense of self. Was it, you told me about your grandfather or your grandmother who told you the story, the history of your family? Yeah. So, um, you know, for starters, I was just, I think I was one of those children who was born with a lot of energy and confidence. And I was privileged to be born into a family that encouraged that in me. And when I was in primary school, because I have this British sounding surname, Peter side, and my name Tokini is not a common name in Lagos, you know, little kids will tease you about different things. And I was being teased by classmates saying that surname is a British surname. Your family must be the descendants um, of slave returnees. And I kind of said, I'm not so sure that's our truth. So 
on one family holiday when we go back to our hometown, which is Opobo town in River State, I basically cornered my granddad and I said, look, granddad, where does this surname come from? Because I know we're not Yoruba, so I know our history is not the same. And he was really delighted to have his seven, eight-year-old granddaughter asking him all these questions. Uh, my granddad was... Um, a real, a real force to be reckoned with. He was so proud of our history, um, and he did so much for where, for the place that we're from and from its people. And so he sat me down and told me the story of our family. Um, he told me the story of how King Jaja of Opobo, who is this legend in folklore now, um, had founded and created the kingdom of Opobo to help. Um, limit the British incursion into Nigerian lands when they were wanting to forage further into the country. And my grandfather's grandfather, Chief Shu Pizasaid, had been one of 12 founding chiefs with King Jaja who created this kingdom and this island, um, leaving wow. their kingdoms to come and form one centralized kingdom that would then be stronger in its unity. So he told me about an island called Pizasaid and how its original name was Ayama, but the British named it Peterside. And so at a time when the family didn't have surnames, um, the chiefs in their treaties with the British would use names like Chief Shu of Peterside when signing treaties with the British. Um, and that was how our family eventually adopted the surname. And you can imagine my delight hearing this as a child, imagining these kings and these chiefs and, and them and all this empire that they built. So, of course, I ran back to primary school to tell everyone, not only do we not have the history you think we have, I am the descendant of a king. So, yeah, I was, I was, <laughs> I was thrilled. I was so thrilled. You couldn't talk to me after that. I was thrilled. That sounds like such an amazing children's book. Honestly. We're going to have to talk about, you know, putting that story into a children's book. Oh, yes. It's a beautiful story. I can see it. It's a beautiful story. And it feels so I can see all of it. Yeah. So that must have been really helpful for you when you moved to the UK and people were giving you, you know, lip and you were able to say, well, this is who I am. So, <laughs> so, so in the UK, I mean, that was those are really interesting years for me. And I did go over quite early. I was 12 and obviously my family stayed behind in Nigeria and I went off to boarding school. And um to be honest, I, I have to say that my parents did the work to choose a school where I would be safe from a lot of um, prejudice and a school that okay. really made the efforts to ensure that girls of various cultures assimilated um, well into the school and didn't tolerate bullying or any of that kind of behavior. But you will still right. face the odd questions. I remember in my first week, some girl coming to ask me, do I have a pet monkey? Do I have a pet, I think a pet elephant? And I was literally like, do you have a pet kangaroo? What kind of question is that? <laughs> so, you know, I was just <laughs> emboldened. <laughs> <laughs> I was this emboldened, you know, fierce and just very self-assured black girl. Like there was nothing you could tell me. Um, and the truth is people didn't, I, I think I was quite lucky to go to this school where there were quite a few other black girls and we did actually form like a community amongst ourselves, but we didn't really feel like we were the other because this school had girls from Asia, from India, um, from Latin America, so many places around the world. I think that when I was more confronted with my Nigerianness was when I moved to London and then went to university in London. And that's okay. when I was noticing the very major differences between myself and my friends who had had the privilege of growing up in Nigeria and other black kids that we encountered. And that's when I started to say, hey, something is different here. 
what's going on. Mm. What were some of the things that you were sort of shocked by so in those for, encounters? So for starters, I mean, I remember encountering children, you know, whose parents were Nigerian or were from the West Indies, and we were all in university together. This is when I was in LSE, and there was a whole community of us in university at that time. And I just found that, you know, in 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 private situations, these kids, like me and my friends, they were loud, they were boisterous, they had a lot of fun. But when it came to, let's say, more um, professional environments, I'll take, I'll give you, for example, when I, we started going to interviews with law firms, because I was studying law at the time, I found mm. that there was an ease with which I could have a conversation with a managing partner at a law firm, speak about myself, project myself, and ultimately mm. become quite memorable to that individual. I noticed that my peers, especially those who had grown up in the UK, didn't have that same that same boldness. Um, they sort of shied away from those conversations. And I started to say, okay, there are some differences here and what are they? Um, wow. And in later years, you know, I would have conversations, much deeper conversations um, with these peers. And that was when I started to realize that those of us who grew up in Nigeria or grew up on the African continent, we really did take for granted the fact that we had all of this audacity. You know, initially when you're very young, you may think that you may be foolish enough to think that it's because you are somehow innately superior. Actually, no, it's just because we grew up in an environment that enabled and allowed us to shine, an environment that was designed to bring out the very best in us. And no one ever in our environments was trying to undermine us in any way, shape, or form. So by the time we were unleashed into the world in the UK or the US or wherever as teenagers, we were powerful. Um, wow. And one thing I started to notice was that that power was a privilege and it was a privilege not to be taken for granted and instead that was when i now started to think about how what could i do with my life that would give more black children around the world that same feeling of power wow wow so talk us through that process i'm curious to know how your interactions were with these other types of black people that you encountered in college um and then how you came to determine what your your role would be in giving back? So I will say that the encounters that really shaped me the most, actually, were probably after my university years, when I was mixing with young professionals at this point, professionals who'd grown up in Germany, um, they'd grown up in the US, and at this point, I, when we would talk about career challenges, when we would talk about um, issues that were being faced in the workplace, I noticed that they saw everything through the lens of race. Um, they, you know, in, in some conversations, I remember an ex-boyfriend at the time that would tell me about his encounters with his boss, and he would recount these stories to me. And at the end, he would talk about how his boss was just so phenomenally racist. Mm. And I remember once there was a particular encounter he told me about. And I said, are you sure your boss is racist? Or is it that there's just something you and him are just not gelling because of some other kind of culture clash? And mm. I started to notice that with my background, 
I am, um, my friends and I, we didn't instantly think about ourselves as somehow diminished vis-a-vis white people that we encountered. Uh-huh. Um, we didn't walk into a room and instantly feel out of place. We didn't walk into a room and instantly count and notice that there were very few black people in the room. And that it was as we as I started to spend more and more time with these other friends who hadn't had um, who hadn't grown up on the continent like we had, I noticed, you know, the pluses and minuses of both. Um, I noticed the. I noticed the. um, The lack of fear that we had that we were going to be put down. And um, I started to think through my work about how to just share that spirit of boldness. Um, Because you see, at that time, in fact, in those years living in England, this was the time when Africa was really starting to shine in the culture and creative space. Those were the years okay. of Chimamanda's, you know, Half of the Yellow Sun. Mm-hmm. Debange and Mohits were starting to do great work in music. Nollywood mm. was starting to take off. And um, those of us with a strong connection to the continent, we felt reinforced by a lot of this work that was coming out. This was our culture, and we were really proud of it. And yeah. in fact, I started to notice that when you shared that culture with European friends or American friends, and they fell in love with that music, there was more of an understanding of who we were as a people. It became quite clear to me in my university years and my young professional years as well that a very powerful way to change how we black people, Africans, Nigerians are perceived could be through culture, could be through Mm. creativity, whether it's art, whether it's fashion, whether it's music or film, creativity that another individual from another background can fall in love with and through that can start to understand what we as a people have to contribute to the world's stories, to the world's conversations and can fall in love with our culture and that it is that ambassadorship by cultural creators, by these musicians, by these filmmakers, by these artists and these dancers, it is that ambassadorship that really can help to rewrite and reshape this narrative about people of African descent. And so that became my obsession. Um, I dove into, I dived into everything. Um, Whether it was the arts, the fashion, the music, the film, I became obsessed and consumed with it all. And I said to myself, I wanted to build businesses that would enable these cultural creators and these cultural producers to thrive, to go out into the world and to do, to do their work, to fulfill their purpose and to live out their missions and to provide the structure that would enable them to do that. So what was the first step of starting <laughs> the so, empire that you built? <laughs> so I moved back to Nigeria in 2008. And okay. it was also a marvelous time to be back here because there were so many young people moving back here, including kids who'd never grown up here but were of Nigerian heritage. Um, and of course, there were parties. Lagos was so much fun. We were having a ball. 
And um, this was during the recession. Yes, this was this was this was during the global recession, and so many kids were moving back home, and we were having a really good time at home, just reconnecting with each other and forging new friendships. And so, my first steps were that all of my friends who aspired to be fashion designers or filmmakers, I was just jumping on projects with them. I was doing my national youth service at the time at a bank. But I became that friend that if you wanted to build a career in fashion, I just became the person that would manage your project and would do your everything with you. Um, I had friends who wanted to be photographers and filmmakers, and I did just that with them. I created projects. I connected them to people. And then I helped them execute these projects in a way that was building their portfolio. So what started out as... Sorry. No, I want to I want to dig in a little bit there because I remember one of the times we spoke when we talked about how a lot of artists didn't have access to that skill set to sort of package and market themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about you know the opportunities that were available to artists at this time. You know how limited they may have been, mm-hmm. and how your positioning made it possible for you to be supportive to these people. So the times that I'm speaking of, I was working very informally, actually. I was just hopping on projects with friends. I was in my early 20s. um, And we were just seeing what could become of the things that we did. Mm -hmm. Um, I decided to make that more professional, actually, after my time at Moe Hennessy. Because having spent the three years at Moe Hennessy sponsoring projects across music, film, fashion, etc., I was thrown deeper and deeper into the community of creatives and creators that was coming out of Nigeria. And when I left in 2012 to start TP Collective, which was the name of my strategy consultancy, I wanted to create links for these creators that could enable them make the very best successes out of themselves. There were not very many supporting structures at that time. Um, Instagram did not exist at that time. And so for a young Nigerian creative or even a more mature Nigerian creative, we had to think around outside the box in terms of how to get their work seen and how to get it noticed. Um, okay. Yeah. How, so talk about that. You want to so, cut you up there. So if I think about, for example, my work with, um, with Maki O, you know, Maki was this exceptional fashion talent who we'd actually been to primary school together. Um, and then we reconnected. We reconnected when we both moved back to Lagos in 2008, 2009. You know, mm. Maki, for example, moved back to Nigeria after her fashion degree in England and just instantly knew that she was launching her label from day one, right? Um, she, she looked around at the fashion sector And while she was being encouraged by family to try and get internships, she was saying, look, I have a story to tell. I know the position and the role that I can play, and I want to start my business now. And you can imagine Mm. the parents of this young woman being like, but what do you know about business? And so that was when I stepped into the picture. And I remember Mm. a meeting we had in 2009 when we spent like three, four hours together, and she told me about her vision and what she wanted to use our traditional African crafts heritage in terms of textile design and how she wanted to reposition what Af- Africans and black people used to signify our Africanness in fashion. 
um, I was sold, right? And so she goes back to her family and tells them, guys, I'm so thrilled. I've met this young woman who instantly gets me. And I believe we can build this business together. And so we started step by step. You know, I, I, I was the first um, support that she had when it came to her debut coming out presentation in Lagos. She wanted to present okay. her graduate collection. And at this time, Lagos Fashion Week did not exist. So as a young fashion designer, you know, we went to people, we tried to canvas support and then um, and took a space in Victoria Island, um, took a bunch of models, put makeup on them, did the usual for putting together a fashion presentation. And I called everybody that I could within my phone book to say, come and see the work of this incredible young woman. That was her first presentation in Lagos of her very first collection. Um, and really helped to put her on the radar of the organizers who would eventually create Lagos Fashion Week, who would eventually create Arise Fashion Week. Um, wow. That's just one example of the resourcefulness that we had in those days where we just made the projects happen. You know, the platform mm. didn't exist. We just made the projects happen. And Macchio has been worn by Lupita, yes. Michelle Obama, yes. <laughs> Lady Gaga, were you still involved with the brand at the point of sort of selling it to these um, global figures? So I was with some, with some of them, okay. the most actually, because after that debut presentation I just described of Macchio, I then spent time working formally with Moe Hennessy. And in 2012, when I set up TP Collective that I mentioned, um, Macchio, like Alara, was um, my core client base. And so mm -hmm. I was working with Maki to build business structure around her creative genius, really, um, wow. and to connect her with the right kind of clientele who could understand her vision, people who saw these clothes as more than just clothes, but understood and believed in the stories that she was trying to tell through the textiles, through her silhouettes. And so um, those were the years where Solange started wearing Mackie O because at this point, Mackie was so grateful to actually another fa fashion designer, Duro Olowu, who was the Nigerian that was really making it on the international stage. And Duro was so kind to connect Mackie to two women in New York who would become instrumental to her career, who would eventually be her sales representatives and her PR representatives. And I was then wow. this vehicle that was helping Mackie build structure around her operations in Lagos so that this team mm -hmm. in New York that had taken on this young fashion designer um, could could exhibit her work and could connect her work to the celebrities and the people that you've mentioned. So I remember, for example, when Michelle Obama was um, visiting, about to visit the continent with, um, with President Obama at the time, and her stylist reached out to to Mackie's team, like others, to say that they wanted to consider her work to be worn by the First Lady. And of course, in those days, you know, you send off the piece, you're really excited, you're quiet, you're keeping calm, and then eventually you get the photo and you know that, yes, the First Lady of the U.S. has now just worn Mackie And then you know what happens. Women in Lagos who we had been trying to pitch this particular blouse to are suddenly calling and burning up the phone. And I took what some thought was a crazy decision. I said, 
actually we're not going to remake that blouse. So, so different from usual business theory. Because I wanted the few women who had bought into that collection without needing to see it on Michelle Obama, I wanted those women to continue to have something so special that would be a limited mm. edition for them because they were the initial believers. Genius. Black genius. <laughs> Black genius. genius. So you guys didn't even reach out to Miss Obama. Her team reached out to you because you had done such a great job of laying the groundwork and making her a visible and exceptional brand. So it was, it was Michelle Obama's team, I believe, that reached out to... To, to the team in New York, um, who were part of, we were all part of this group that was just championing this incredible genius, talent, and mind that was Macchio. So it was really a collective effort. You know, I wasn't directly in links with them, but I had to do things on the ground in Lagos so they could play their role in New York. And ultimately, we were just this package housed around this genius. You know, actually, I love the name of this podcast, Black Genius, because my work is about black geniuses. Um, I gave Mackie my everything in those years because up until today, I still don't know that I have come across a creative mind like Mackie's when it comes to fashion and textile design. She's a rare genius, just as Reni Falario, whose vision for Alara, I mean, Reni Falario is another genius. So my work has been about providing the support and the systems and the structure that these geniuses need to really show who the world, who they are, and to create the change that can be created through their work. Well, you're going to have to invite them onto Black Genius for us. Definitely <laughs> I'd, be have glad to. I'd be glad to. <laughs> With these geniuses. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about Alara and, you know, how that... So I'll just walk people through and, and hope, I hope, um, Alexis, if you're watching, you can drop some pictures of Alara on our Instagram because, oh my God, um, I, you know, I go back to Nigeria as often as I can. And in 2016, I said, I'm going to spend the summer and, you know, figure out what it's going to be like to live here. And I think that was the first time I went in maybe two years. Mm. And I spent, you know, three, four months in Lagos and just soaked in what was happening in Lagos, what structures were being built. And I was shocked to find like health food restaurants and juice bars yeah. and every detail in Alara is like meticulously put together. It seems even on the menu, you have a fusion of food from Senegal, from Nigeria, from other parts of the continent, mm -hmm. just this absolute celebration of African genius, the black genius. Mm -hmm. And if you've never been to Alara, please make sure you visit because it is absolutely a monument to our talent. Um, so Tokini, tell us about, you know, the seeds of that idea and how it became this, this monument. Of course, it's my pleasure. So... I think, I mean, I have to start by saying that some of the work that I've done, I just think about the privilege that it's been to meet these geniuses like Macchio and Reni mm -hmm. Falario and to have them trust me um, with their vision. So the vision for Alara is 100% Reni Falario. Um, you know, our story together actually began in 2011. And at this time, I was knee deep in my work with Moe Hennessy. And Rennie, who was this, you know, incredibly sophisticated woman that I knew loosely socially, called me and said, I have a vision for this, this um, store I want to build. And I think you're the person to help me make it happen. And so 
later that year, we had this six-hour conversation in her home where she just rolled and literally shared her vision with me. And by the time she was done, I was literally like, it's like you took all my dreams, you crept into my dreams at night, put all of them together and said that you want to put them in this incredible Mecca, this, wow. this phenomenal space that will celebrate everything that is excellent about being African. Let's go. I'm ready to do this. So as I mentioned, when I set up TP Collective, Alara was my other major client like Macchio. And it was my job to basically build the structure that would enable Reni Falario's vision to come to life. That meant that I was by her side through everything. Um, you know, so what she wanted was to create a space that would celebrate the very best of us, but which over time would gradually get Nigerians and Africans to know that the luxury that you seek, the aspirational objects mm -hmm. and products of excellence that you seek, the continent is filled with them. And so I was privileged to travel with her to Senegal. We went to South Africa. We also went on many trips to Europe, but we were looking for gems all across the continent. And Reni, working with Reni Falario opened my eyes to the phenomenal design that you had in places like Mozambique, Burkina Faso, Ivory Coast. I mean, there was so much coming out of the continent that Nigeria at that time did not even have a connection to. And she wanted to build this space that would house all of this, place it side by side with the best, the, the biggest luxury brands from around the world, Bottega Veneta, Lanvin, Valentino, and get Nigerians and Africans to start to see that there's exceptional craftsmanship at home. And, um, you know, we spent three years together with me by her side. You know, we were pitching to international brands whilst also buying a lot from African brands. And ultimately, the space known as Alara was delivered. Um, I think that when you walk into Alara and you can't but get it, you know, you can't but understand what Reni's vision was. There is no space like Alara in the world. And... I think that um, just like Macchio, Reni Falario is one of these creative geniuses that I think only very few people have been lucky enough to get close to her to understand the kind of vision that this woman has. Her pride in her Africanness, how she places that first um, before anything else. And her Pan-African vision as well is one that has been such an influence to me, but has set an example for so many. Because prior to Alara, if you were looking for luxury or for fashion or design as a Nigerian, you went to Italy, you thought about France, you were not thinking about Senegal, you were not thinking about Burkina Faso, you were not thinking about you know East Africa. Um, Alara has been that space that has brought this Pan-African unity now and has enabled people to start to understand that let's look inward first because there are phenomenal treasures here. And I'm sure these platforms have been critical. I know that when Naomi Campbell visits um, Lagos, she goes to Alara. These are some of the brands that were critical in sort of exploding African fashion globally oh, yes. um, to the point where people recognize what a huge opportunity it is. And I've said many times that it's a trillion dollar industry. Would you agree with that? What do you think the OP is in fashion and art 
oh on the gosh. continent. I, I mean, clearly we're, we're talking about Art X, so. Yes, but it, I mean, it's, it's a trillion dollar industry in the making. There is just so much here. There is so much here that the world is sleeping on. There's so much here that even we ourselves have been sleeping on. And what has been so amazing about the past few, the past, I'd say, five to 10 years is that it's all coming up now. Like you can't even hide the brilliance. It's all coming up. So how did you transition from Moe Hennessy to Art X? Tell okay. us about that. So journey. I know we've kind of gone up, down, and back around with my story. But so after Moe Hennessy, there was TP Collective, where I was doing the strategy consulting work with Macchio and Alara's clients. And then I went to do an MBA at INSEAD, and I spent time between Fontainebleau in France and Singapore. I went to do that MBA because I said to myself, creators are coming to me as... Um, the, the wanting me to be the backbone behind their businesses. And to be that backbone as best as possible, I need to go and study business and ensure that I get this MBA that just kind of wraps up my knowledge and fortifies what I already know. And whilst on my MBA, I was then doing a lot of research, thinking into how I could move from working with individual creators to creating platforms that would benefit much larger numbers of creators at the same time. Um, and though my work had been in fashion, in design, I'd been collecting art by this point for about six, seven years. And I'd befriended many artists along the way as well. And I was struck by the fact that a lot of Nigeria's most promising contemporary artists were starting to think that the only way to have a successful global career was to leave Nigeria and move to places like Berlin or New York. Now, I have no problem with emigration per se, but I felt that those artists who wanted to remain, I felt that I could build a platform that could be a bridge between Nigeria and what was happening across the rest of the world in the art world to enable those artists who really wanted to stay connected to home to do so. And so this is how Artex Lagos was born. I was inspired when I visited the Venice Biennale in 2015, and I just saw the world's, the world's art industry stakeholders taking in all of this work, a large portion of which was African in that year because of the curator Okri and Wezor. And I felt that we should do this at home, that we shouldn't keep having to travel overseas to showcase our brilliance. We could create a platform at home that could show the world all of what we have to offer and what all of our kindred um, family across the continent also had to offer. And so this was how the idea of the art fair came into being. Um, I was lucky to have amazing classmates in my business school that I could plan the idea with, the initial seeds mm -hmm. of the idea, and they kept saying to me, go big or go home. So at first we thought, well, we do this on e-commerce, and then I got back to Lagos and I said, no, let's actually make it an art fair, and we did. So in 2016, I launched the first Artex Lagos Fair. Um, yeah, and that's that's how it took off. How did you find the art? How exactly did you, did you start in the beginning to source the art and decide what you wanted to present to the world in this fair? So my role with Artex Lagos is, is vast. You know, I'm the entrepreneur and I'm the business and the strategy mind behind it, the marketing as well, um, and have had to play so many roles in the course of putting this business together because it is a startup and it's, it's still quite a small team that we have together. But what I did in that first year was I engaged the curator, the late Bissi Silva, to come and work with me as a consultant artistic director because I, I truly appreciate 
her knowledge and her view of the art world. And so together we decided on the galleries that we were going to invite. And she spent a lot of time reaching out to those galleries. And she was such a respected figure in the art world that she, she sold to them this vision um, that she and I had been discussing. And we just got all the support. You know, um, mm. and I shared so many of my ideas with Bissy about how I wanted this fair to break down the barriers that existed between the collectors and this small scale art world in Nigeria and everybody else. So we had really interesting conversations where I was insistent on music playing a role in this art fair, on projects mm. that would take art off the walls, make it less intimidating, make it less exclusive, and make it something accessible, exciting, and dynamic mm -hmm. to everyone. So in addition to Bissy, we also worked with the White Space Creative Agency, led by my incredible friend, Papa Motayo, and they designed so many projects, we co-designed them together, where young talent could do so much at this fair in a way that you don't typically have at art fairs. You know, most art fairs are quite corporate structures. You have white walls, galleries, selling work to affluent collectors, and it really tends to stop there. I wanted to build an art fair for the people of Lagos, where any and everyone could walk into this fair, feel at home, feel as though they belonged, and find a space for themselves through which they could connect to this artwork. Wow. And I remember you telling me about this interview with French journalists, because I want to talk <laughs> about your, your, taste, <laughs> your taste in art and how, you know, art is very subjective. And I love what you said about accessibility for the people of Lagos. How do you determine that something is worthy of Art X, of your home? Um, how do you make art accessible to those who don't know where to begin to figure out, like, is this worth having? So part of my motivation in creating Art X Lagos was actually to to disrupt a lot of that. Um, I fundamentally believe that everybody should have the freedom to like the art that they like. I believe that you should be free to encounter a work of art and decide that you love it and not live in fear that some you know, super academic curator is going to criticize um, your taste or criticize what you love. Mm. And that for me, that freedom to express oneself through the art that one chooses to surround themselves with is very important. And it's really at the crux of a lot of what I do. Um, and with Artex Lagos, we did know that we would be many people's first introduction to visual and contemporary art. So we wanted to show them as much as possible. We wanted to show them the works by Africa's you know, leading galleries who were bringing the continent's most exciting artists to the fair, and wanted to show them as well work by young artists, wanted to take them beyond painting and sculpture to photography and video art and installations and get people to understand that they had a right to participate in the process and the, the world of art appreciation. Um, mm. And that work has been really exciting. You know, we've held four editions of the fair now. This year is going to be our fifth edition. And what I'm so proud is that my team and I have really created this movement around the visual arts and this resurgence in interest. Um, now, now, of course, I must mention that the art scene in Nigeria 
is one that is incredibly dynamic. It's just that this industry has not gathered a lot of the interest and the investment that it needed all this while. And what we have done is we've come in as catalysts to shake up the art sector and to say to people, you need to pay attention to what's happening on the art scene here in Nigeria and across Africa as well, because it's, it's incredible. There's so much to talk about. <laughs> Supposedly, we have five minutes left. Oh, um, wow. And we have a bunch of questions from the comments, um, you know, our community in the comments. So I guess comment if you want to stick around, if you want us to add a few more minutes, because um, I want to... Oh, God. So many questions. Okay. So obviously, I love what you're doing. I want to know what you're most proud of um, thus far with ArtX. Hmm. What am I most proud of with ArtX? There are too many moments to name, honestly. Um, honestly, I, I often say that ArtX Lagos and the ArtX portfolio now is something that needed to exist. I think it was a movement that needed to start. And I often say that I'm just very privileged to have been the custodian who this idea was shared with and who could then have bear the responsibility of bringing it into the world. I've had incredibly proud moments. You know, last year, for example, we hosted the Kenyan-American artist Wangechi Mutu at the fair, and she was our keynote speaker. And after Wangechi was done with her experience at the fair, you know, she was interviewed by our team. And what she had to say about our work, what she had to say about the importance of creating this space for Africanness and for us to appreciate and celebrate our own names. When you have a woman like Wangechi, whose work has been everywhere from MoMA um, to the Metropolitan Museum in New York, Venice Biennale all over the world, endorsing your vision and celebrating the work of myself and my team, I felt so honored and so proud. We've had other incredible visitors that have come through Artex Lagos, but I'll tell you the moments that stick with me the most. It's actually after the VIP previews are done, the champagne glasses are put away, and I just stand there quietly at the fair and I watch thousands of people who don't know me, who I don't know, traipsing through the doors, families with their kids, grandparents, students, university students, thousands of them traipsing through the doors to come and experience this work. I'm looking at their faces and their expressions. Those are the moments that get to me the most. And that's when I always feel so grateful for the work. Wow. So we have a couple of questions. I saw your question, Ayo and Uzo. Um, and I'm going to start with Uzo's question because Ayo's question is tied to our last question. Sure. So Uzo wants to know what you think the next step is in African luxury, um, what opportunities have not been tapped into, and what weaknesses um, there are that need to be strengthened in that sector. Hmm. The next step for African luxury, hmm, that's a big one. I think that um, those who talk about African luxury at the moment really need to start thinking about the value chain and about the communities. I say this because at the heart of a lot of our African luxury is craftsmanship. And at the heart of craftsmanship is people. Now, a lot of the purveyors of African luxury, the brands that are trying to start up, whether it's in fashion or textile design, are not yet financially buoyant to be able to look after 
the communities of people that create this work. What I would love to see in this sector is after the investment, whether it's from private equity funds, venture capital funds, or angel investors, that will enable these businesses first to take care of the craftsmen and the communities that are at the heart of the work before we then start thinking about how we're going to market that work and put it on the world stage. Um, I think my, my, my transition from fashion through to art has reinforced my understanding and my belief in the fact that it's all about the people at the end of the day. It's all about the people who are creating this work and how can we build businesses that can enable us look after and benefit many more people and communities. Wow. Um, so the last question I'll ask so that we can wrap up because my laptop's about to die. Okay. Um, <laughs> is what <laughs> is related to Ayo's question about systemic racism and this moment um, and everything that's happening around us. Mm. What does black liberation mean to you? I think this moment offers all of us as black people, especially those who live in the diaspora, to be ourselves, to own who we are, and to unequivocally and without apology express who we are. Um, without fear of whether the world will accept us for who we really are. Um, what I love so much about the images that I've seen from the Black Lives Matter protests all over the world, I think it's, it's about us owning who we are and owning the fullest expressions of ourselves and being an unapologetic about who we are. Um, it's... It's, it's time for a take it or leave it type of attitude. And I think that's what we've seen through the protests that have happened all over the world and these demonstrations. Um, I am so thrilled now to know that there are going to be generations of young black men and women who, are, who will hopefully be born into a world that sees them for who they really are a world in which they don't have to apologize for who they are. They don't have to apologize for what their hair looks like. They don't have to apologize for their culture, for their accents, for the way that they speak, for the things they are interested in. Um, they can just be, they can just be free and they can breathe. And for me, that idea that black people across the world now have this moment and this opportunity to just reclaim self mm. and start from a place of self as opposed to a place of the other or the place of an oppressor, I think it's a wonderful thing. And I'm really excited and looking forward to seeing how the world will shift and how this moment will reshape the world's attitudes, not just in terms of whites to blacks, but also blacks to self. Yeah. Mm. Wow. There's, there's so many shifts happening right now. And I think the most exciting one for me is what you've mentioned, that people are beginning to roll out the red carpet for Black people. <laughs> people are beginning to apologize for things that, you know, they once denied existed. Um, so I'm really excited for the future. What's, what's next for ArtX? What is your... Yeah, what is the virtual, the COVID art X looking like right now? And we'll close on that. So this is a question that I get asked every day, several times, because everybody wants to know what's next for us. 
Um, let's say that Artex Lagos, it's coming up to our fifth edition in November. Um, first weekend of November is when we always promise to have the fair. Will we have a virtual component? Definitely we will. We have no choice but to do that. And actually we have to embrace this digital revolution that's been brought in by COVID. But what I think is beautiful about the digital revolution is um, that for the first time, Artex Lagos's fans and audiences who are usually scattered around the world and some of whom don't get to visit our fair each year in November will get to experience firsthand a lot of what it is that we will be doing here in Lagos. Um, we're looking forward to, for the first time, really communing with the many people across the world who love our brand, who love what we stand for, but don't always get to travel to the fair. So we've been international previously in our outlook and our focus. We've had collectors visit from all over the world. But I feel that there is a different kind of democratization that the internet's going to inspire, which means that, Lola Day, you're going to get to come to Artex Lagos this year yes! without even taking a flight. Um, and we're really excited to share that experience um, in November. Wow, I'm so excited for Art X5 um, and for all, you know, we're going to keep talking for sure. We want to continue to follow your work. How can people stay connected with you? How can they stay updated on what's happening with Art X and um, your, your own experience? So to stay updated with us, um, at Artex Lagos is on Instagram or on Twitter or on Facebook. I think Instagram is where you see the fullest expression of what we do. I'm at, at Tokini Peterside. My page is private, but if you apply to follow me, I will accept. Um, although I have to apologize in advance and say that I don't post nearly as often as I should. But Artex Lagos, our team is super, super active on Instagram. And there's so much, um, so many incredible debates and interesting conversations that are that are provoked by our team at the moment, actually, looking into everything that's happening in the world. And so we have this community on Instagram that is, um, is really engaged at the moment. And I invite everyone to join that conversation. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much, Tokini. This has been such a joy. Thank you to our audience. Thank you for everybody who's watched. Please share this with a friend, a family member, somebody who you know needs to hear more and learn more about African art, diaspora art. Um, like our page if you haven't already. Stay updated through our page on our Facebook page, our Instagram page. Join our mailing list on norpress.org. And yeah, keep us posted on what you're up to. If you're a Black genius, you want to be on the show, stay connected with us. We appreciate you. We love you. Stay glorious. Stay powerful. You are the original people. Eat your greens. Take your vitamin <laughs> D. Take your vitamin D. Get Take sun. Your vitamin D. <laughs> yes. Get lots of sunlight. Um, stay up. This is us signing off.